11 days ago, I started the second half of my fourth year as your pastor. Some of you, I know it it seems like it's been 100, but uh, one thing has been constant through three and a half years and 11 days, and that is that since I've been here, we have been on some kind of a staff search. With that said, I want to introduce to you the chairman of our children's minister search committee, Mike Chase, who has an announcement from that committee. Mike. This is number four, Jesse. First off, I want to thank the church for the past two years. I want to thank you all for y'all's prayers. pray that you just continue to pray for us over the next little while. Uh, the committee consisted of myself, Alan Stanley, uh, Phil Hatton, Don Poole, Debbie Harris, uh, Danley Payne, um, Pauline Galt, and Beth Dillon until they moved. Um, we believe that as a committee, 100%, that uh, God has led us to the man for Crestwood at this time, uh, him and his uh, wife. His name is Kevin Howland. Uh, his wife's name is Sydney. Uh, they are currently serving part-time as children's ministers at uh, First Baptist Church in West Monroe, Louisiana. Uh, prior to that, he was in the uh, military in special intelligence. Um, after the military, he was a civilian contractor uh, in Iraq. Uh, he served in, as in the military in several different uh, areas of the uh, world. Um, he Surrendered to the ministry late in life. Uh, him and his wife, have, they've been married eight years. Uh, they have a six-year-old girl, a five-year-old boy, and a four-month-old boy. Uh, she's a uh, high school math teacher. Uh, and uh, we, as a committee, have invited them to come in view of a call uh, for him as the children's minister uh, the weekend of January 23rd. Uh, there will be different groups meeting with him throughout that weekend, uh, be publicized when we get all the details finalized. Uh, Then uh, both services on that Sunday morning, uh, he will be introduced and have a time to uh, tell about him and his uh, ministry and his family. And at the close of the uh, second service, uh, whether we call him or not, it'll be announced at that time. So are y'all disappointed about that? Because you look disappointed. Uh, it's entirely appropriate to be happy. For three and a half years, I've been waiting for that announcement. So, great. How about them cowboys? <laughs> what do you mean, shake your head to that? Well, like I told the first service, just don't get your hopes up. Uh, and what I mean by that is that is to get out of here in time to see the game. I'm sure that we'll get out in time for you to get the final score, but uh, no, we'll get you out. Um, if you happen to be a Cowboys fan, uh, I guess if you're not, we're praying for you, but if you happen to be a Cowboys fan, you followed closely the deliberations of the NFL a couple of weeks ago now, when at the close of the regular season... Um, Indomitian Sue. That's first name Indomitian. Last name is Sue. I'm just going to call him Sue. Um, 
He's a defensive lineman for the Detroit Lions, all pro, mean as a devil, this guy is. And uh, the NFL took up the case of an incident that occurred at the close of the regular season, when, which looked suspiciously like an incident that occurred in his life in a previous NFL season where he literally stomped on uh, an opposing player who was laying on the ground. This guy loves to be competitive, obviously. And uh, so in this final game of this season, of the NFL regular season anyway, uh, he stepped backwards onto a body part for a guy named Aaron Rodgers, who is quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. The NFL took that up, and because of Sue's previous um, episodes on the field with stuff like that, the initial decision was that he was disqualified for the playoff game last week. He was suspended. Now, the NFL uh, on appeal decided to reverse their decision. As a Cowboys fan, I'm glad it didn't really matter that much. But I want to focus our attention to the event and the aftermath of what he did that caused the whole discussion about being disqualified or suspended. To be disqualified um, means that there has been some kind of a violation of a rule or rules that excludes an individual from participating in future games or activity in this case. That's important, uh, not so much for the NFL because in the overall scheme of life, the NFL does not matter. But there are things in life that do matter. One of the things that I want to really emphasize today from this pulpit is, not just today, by the way, but as a rule, one of the things that really matters in the kingdom of God is people. Churches haven't always done a very good job of underscoring that and of embracing that. As we come to a discussion about bringing a gentleman in and his family to be considered as a minister on staff at our church. One of the questions that I think that we must deal with is what qualifies, or as I've started talking in these terms, what disqualifies an individual from being a minister or a pastor? Now, the reality is that most people have some kind of an answer in mind. Just the question itself, what disqualifies a person? And that's where I'm really going to kind of zero in today. And I'm going to take a very targeted piece of more than one passage of Scripture here. It's consistent across those passages. Uh, And the reason I'm going to do that is because it speaks to the question of what might disqualify somebody from being considered as a pastor or a minister on staff. We all have things in mind. The reality for us is that there are two key texts in the Bible that deal with this, and we're going to look at both of them today. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, and then also in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6. And so I'm going to give you a little time. You can go ahead and start finding that, and we'll read through some of those passages in a minute. I'm going to actually read more than what's listed uh, because I want us to get the full thrust of what Paul is saying as he talks to this guy named Timothy and another one named Titus about what is it that you look for? What does a minister, overseer in the biblical sense need to carry with him to be qualified? 
Here's a deal. For us as Baptists, we really need to, to be honest with ourselves. For all of the anti-Catholic rhetoric that comes from Baptist lips, we carry a very Catholic kind of thing with us sometimes, and that is we allow Scripture to take a backseat to tradition. Now, if you're Catholic, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I, I, I know that there's not a chance in the world that we would be here with the traditions that we have if it hadn't been for great, faithful Catholics through the years. I am not going to Catholic bash from this pulpit ever. But the Baptist tradition seems to have that tendency in it to, to pick out other faith groups and just attack them. And one of the attacks that Baptists have levied against Catholics is that they, they lean too strongly on tradition and not enough on Scripture. And, and I'm here to say to us that we need to be honest enough to recognize that we have powerful traditions too. Let me just... Get, why do most Baptist churches have an 11 o'clock worship service on Sunday morning? You know the answer to that? It's tradition. It's a tradition that started way back in the frontier days. And after that, 1800s moving forward as people in America out on the frontier and they were trying to make a living and just sweat of their brow, make a living in the earth. And otherwise, in order to go to church, they still had to get all their chores done. And so they would do that on the farm and then they would get together and then they would jump in a wagon or they would walk into town where the church was. And so they decided, uh, let's do it later in the day. This is a true story, by the way. Do it later in the day so that we can get our stuff done at home. We can get to church. We'll have dinner on the ground. We'll bring our own lunch. And uh, we'll just kind of be able to make a day of it there. It's a tradition. Now, we've expanded on that tradition. And those of you who don't like coming at 11, uh, you want to get it over with early so you can get on with your life, go to the 830 service. Some churches have Saturday night services. That's fine. But the one consistent thing across most Baptist churches is an 11 o'clock worship service on Sunday morning. You don't find that in Scripture anywhere. If it was something as simple as when we do a worship service, it would be one thing. But some of our traditions dismiss people. Some of our traditions set us up to treat people as if they don't matter. I preached a sermon the first year that I was here, almost... Four years ago now, in March of 2012, and it, in that, if I remember right, I asked that we start a revolution. And that is that we, as God's people, would come back to a more biblical point of reference on one element that we're going to find in these passages dealing with the qualifications of an overseer. Here, let me say it a different way today, and I'll just kind of throw it out there today. Don't you think that people who go through a marriage that ends in divorce have enough pain in their life not to have to go to church and get more pain from church people? Don't you think? But unfortunately, one of the traditions that we have carried forward, and I'm going to try to argue with, uh, not with you, but from my, I'm going to argue for a standpoint today that you cannot justify some of the positions that we have taken in our traditions if you just use Scripture as a way to justify them. And it has to do with divorce, and especially has to do with this question, can someone who has been divorced serve as a pastor or as a minister? 
churches are full, Baptist churches are full today of people who without thinking will give an immediate no. If you've been divorced, you cannot serve as a pastor or as a minister. If that's you today, then first of all, I want you to know this is not an attack on you, but it is very decidedly an invitation to explore Scripture and try to find a basis for what you say. Clearly, I would not be doing this if there was not a good reason. The man that our committee has brought forward, who will be here in two weeks, who will have a called business meeting on that day, We'll vote on whether or not he can be a minister in this church and whether or not we'll provide him the opportunity to lead us in children's ministry. This man specifically has a divorce in his background. And as we came to the question in the committee and as we figured that, well, we didn't figure it out. He put it on his resume. It's not like he's trying to hide from it or anything. He's Baptist after all. He knows that for some people, you might as well get it out there up front. The committee looked to me and they said, I don't remember exactly the way it was said. Here's the way I interpreted it. Do we believe that? And here's my answer. Anytime anybody asks me what we believe as Baptists, I'm going to answer this. First of all, we as Baptists believe in the priesthood of the believer. Okay? So I'm going to tell you what I believe. But even with that, what I believe doesn't matter nearly as much as what Scripture teaches. And if we're to be people of the book, as has long been our argument, our war cry, then we should know what the book says. It is not enough to fight for the integrity of Scripture unless you're willing to fight to handle Scripture well. And that's what we want to do in this church always. Can someone who's been divorced serve as a pastor or a minister? Or is it like the Dallas Cowboys playoffs this year? It's going to be one and done. You just get one shot at it. The way we answer the question reveals how we handle Scripture. So let's be careful that we handle Scripture well. I recognize this is not the normal kind of sermon. Normally when I come in here, I try to take a passage of Scripture, try to chew it with you and get it back out there and then say, okay, let's go out and live it and here's what it looks like as we live it out. Okay, This is much more of a targeted kind of sermon. We need to deal with a piece of who we are and our traditions in our Baptist churches and make sure that we're in line with Scripture as it relates to that. Now, when the guy comes, we don't want to have this hanging on him and still have unanswered questions. Is it possible for that to work? We need to settle the question And then we need to be able to move on and deal with him. Just so that you know, a lot of our deacons are scattered around out there. This is not new information for them. We had a deacons meeting Monday night, went into it. We talked through this. We looked at scripture together. They know what I'm doing. That doesn't mean that I'm automatically right or that they're automatically right. The question is, how do you see scripture and how do you handle it responsibly? So let's take the question and let's set it and hang it there and it begins now to drive everything that we say. Now I want to come to scripture finally and I want to read a few verses here in both uh, 1 Timothy and in Titus so that we can get the full gist of what Paul is saying. Paul writes to this guy named Timothy. He has left him in charge in a church that is in the middle, I mean the middle of a lax moral society. That is the city of Ephesus and the church that was there. 
Chapter 3, verse 1 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer, now here's the qualifications. An overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, now I'm going to stop the reading for just a second and make a comment here, okay? The husband of one wife. Now, as far as I, the research that I've done, every English translation that I looked at, all the main normal ones, uh, uh, say it that way, the husband of one wife. The, the one exception to that is the New International Version, which includes an extra word in there, and that is a big inclusion, all right? And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. The NIV says the husband of but one wife. The rest of them strictly said the husband of one wife. So let me back up verse 2 again. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. I paused here in the first service. I'll do it here just to let all of our ministers on staff get this. It doesn't say hostile. It says hospitable. Big difference. Able to teach, verse 3, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. That's 1 Timothy. The qualifications... For a, he used the term overseer. We would translate that as a pastor or a minister. Titus chapter 1. This is Paul writing again. He's writing to a different young man who's in the ministry. And Paul gives him these words in chapter 1 beginning in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. Very key statement there. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is, here are the qualifications. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, an exact duplication of language from 1 Timothy into Titus chapter 1, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward He must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And I'm going to stop reading there. We'll go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. But here's the phrase now that we must deal with as a church. I'm suggesting, in case you just woke up into this sermon, I am suggesting that no matter what our tradition has said, it's time for us to see what Scripture says and be responsible in handling it as it relates to the question, can an individual be divorced and still be a minister? It all turns on this one phrase, the husband of one wife. I need to talk to you. I need to maybe set a little bit of background here for you. So give me just a second to do that, if you will. Don't don't let me lose you in this. We have to make sure that we understand the role that interpretation plays in our translation. 
See if I can say it this way. When we lived in the Rio Grande Valley, deep south Texas, just a handful of miles from the Rio Grande River, the border between Mexico and the United States, um, the, the culture there was decidedly Hispanic. The population and the demographics of that population were overwhelmingly Hispanic as opposed to Anglo. In other words, my family was always a minority group down there. Um, and many of the people who live in the Rio Grande Valley have Spanish as a first language, and many of them have Spanish as an only language. And so regularly, I would have guys come by the church, and they were passing through. Whether they were illegal or not might be up for discussion, but they would come by the church, and they would have nothing, no water, nothing, no clothes, nothing like that, and they would come to the door, and I would answer the door uh, to the church, and they, I said, can I help you? And they would immediately begin talking to me at about 500 words a second in Spanish. And my response to that always was this. But quickly following that look of amazed dumbfoundedness, I would say, momento, por favor. You know what that means? It means... I'm an Anglo dude who does not understand what you're saying. Please wait just a second. But it's in Spanish. Momento, por favor. One moment, please. And I would go get our custodian, Pedro Cantu, who also was from Mexico. But he'd been in the United States a long time. He spoke English 500 words a second. What a challenge with Pete. But I would bring him to the door with me, and I would say, okay, Pete, uh, translate for me. And so the guy would speak in Spanish, and Pete would talk back to him in Spanish. And they would talk for 10, 15 minutes, and Pete would say to me, he's hungry, that kind of thing. <laughs> so what I needed from Pete was more than just a word-for-word translation of what the guy said. What I needed from him was boil it down, okay? What is the need here? Many times Pete would say this to me. He says, and then he would say it in Spanish, and I would have to stop him. Pete, I don't understand that. Oh, how do you say it in English? And he would think for a moment, and then he would give me the statement. Okay? The reason he did that is because there are colloquial phrases that we use in our language that when it comes time to translate it into another language, it doesn't translate exactly. And so if you translate it exactly, it's, it'd be something like the dog is hanging from his meal or something like that. It doesn't make sense until you do interpretation in that. Remember, translation and interpretation in the way they work together. So when it comes time for us to do scripture, that's happening every time I stand up in the pulpit or any other pastor does or any teacher stands up. There is a point of reference that says we need to translate what's here, but in the translation, there's always some interpretation that occurs. That's why you have so many different versions of the Bible. People ask me, which one do you prefer? I'm always a little hesitant to answer that because I really want you to read the one that you'll read instead of the one that I think you ought to read. Does that make sense? 
Well, I mean, there are some out there that they're not. <laughs> some, some of them out there you just don't need to read. But uh, that's a whole other sermon. So in this case, here's what we need to get. Anytime we come to Scripture, we have to begin to understand there's a cultural context. And so Paul, in this case, is writing to a guy named Timothy. Timothy has been placed in charge of a new church, sort of new, in Ephesus of all places. I had the chance to go to Ephesus when I was doing a tour of the seven churches of Revelation. From, uh, uh, and uh, Ephesus is one of the most preserved archaeological sites in all of Turkey. That's a huge statement, but uh, that's the reality of it. And we spent most of a day there walking through these streets that they've unearthed and seeing different things, amphitheaters and all that kind of stuff. And, and so it's in that place. It was a place that had uh, one of those temples to Caesar, which made it a key place in the Greco-Roman world. And it also had a temple for Artemis. And you go to the book of Acts and you can read about some of Paul's exploits there. Artemis, also known as Diana. Diana... Um, let me just say, you can go do some checking. You can Google that if you want because Diana was a pagan fertility goddess. I do not recommend that your young children go to the Internet with you while you do that because they may show you one of the small uh, statues, idols of her, and you'll have a lot of explaining to do for a fertility goddess. Fill in the blanks. It was in that environment, this sexual promiscuity-ridden environment that this church was operating. And Paul leaves instructions in this letter for this young upstart preacher named Timothy. And he said, when you go to find the people to give leadership to this church, there are some qualifications you look for. And we read through those. It's interesting to me that with that thrust of this whole passage and the one in Titus, that we have in our tradition set up a disqualification based on what we think one little phrase means. So it's our responsibility now to, to come to this. Now, the English translations accurately reflect what the language says. Well, for the most part, except for that NIV thing that I said where they throw the word but in there. Literally translated what Paul writes in Greek here is not, well, well, I think the husband of one wife is fine, but a very literal translation is a one-woman man. Three words in Greek, one, woman, man. The word divorce is not used there. There were words that could have been used there if Paul intended to say divorce. He didn't use them. So the literal translation, a one-woman man, now don't get tripped up, okay, by the husband-wife thing because the word woman, also in Greek, the same word, also can be translated as wife. The word man can also be translated as the word husband. And so husband of one wife is okay. But the literal ongoing kind of use of those terms, I, I, I prefer that we call it a one-woman Man, a one-wife one husband is okay too. The problem with that for us is that that leaves room for interpretation. 
Remember what I said? The translation says a one-woman man or a one-wife husband. But that leaves room for us to interpret that. And so Baptists historically have interpreted that to mean you can't be divorced. The problem with that is there are other options that are equally valid. Let me give you a couple of them. What did Paul mean is what we're asking here. We can just take it as it is, and these are the three options that we get. Paul might have been saying one wife at a time. I'm watching the men here to see how you respond to the idea of more than one wife anyway. The one wife at a time specifically deals with the possibility that Paul might have been saying, if this guy is going to be a minister of the gospel, he cannot have multiple wives, as in polygamy. That's a very, very possible interpretation, although I don't think it's likely here. The reason it's possible is because in Jewish society, polygamy in the first century was still very common. So Paul might have been coming from his Jewish roots saying, you guys out there who have multiple wives, what are you thinking? No, that's not what he said. He says, what disqualifies, if we take it this way, what disqualifies a guy is if he has multiple wives at the same time. He doesn't say it that way. He just says a one-woman man. Another option is that he might be saying one wife at this time. Now, the difference here, and this is really kind of where I think we begin to put our feet down into this a little bit. So, regardless of the past, in other words, regardless how many wives you might have had in the past, even if you had, uh, as a polygamist and you had six wives a year ago, but you narrowed them down and you've pared them away and you've kind of put some away and you finally settled on the one you wanted. You should have done that when you were dating. But anyway, no matter what it used to be for you, even if you have been divorced, you only have one wife at this time, then you're qualified. You see the difference in those two? Both of them are possible. The third possibility is the one where Baptists have historically built their tent, pitched their tent, and that is one wife for all time. But here's where Baptists are inconsistent, okay? Nothing worse than an inconsistent Baptist. If you go with the one wife for all time, then that means whether it's divorce or death, a minister can never remarry. Now, which of those three did Paul mean? And that's a trick question. Because the reality is you cannot determine which one Paul meant. There's just not enough there for us to definitively stand and declare Paul's intent. We just can't do it. There's not enough given. He literally says a one-woman man, which means you can take your pick. My dad used to say you can pay your money and take your chances. I'm going to come back to that statement in just a second. 
But the important thing for us is to realize that we cannot definitively state what Paul intended with this. We try to figure out what does he mean to them. Well, that's a pretty good answer for a pretty good place for us to go. As we try to settle this in our own hearts, what is he saying? Does Paul really not want anybody who's been divorced to be a minister? If that's the case, my first question is, why did not Paul use that word here? And in Titus, there's another instance of this word that's used to refer to the qualifications of a deacon. Now, that's a whole other discussion in our church. Have you figured out that this could be my last sermon in this church? Have you figured that out yet? I want to thank the Children's Ministry Search Committee for pushing me into this. No, I'm just kidding about that. This is a point of biblical posturing that we have to decide as a church where we're going to put ourselves. Another place Paul uses this, tied to widows, a one husband kind of woman. One of the things I think is important as we come back to, how am I doing on time? Man, Cowboys are already behind. It's 12.02. Here's a, I'm almost through, really, so hang in there with me. I had a professor in college, my Greek professor to be exact. He was also her New Testament guy at Wayland Baptist University in Plainview, Texas. Dr. Fred Howard wrote for the Sunday School Board. He was in the latter years of his teaching career, and he was as sharp as any guy I've ever seen. And I've known some sharp guys when it comes to biblical Greek. Dr. Howard, in our New Testament theology class, just continued to push this truth to us. When Scripture is silent on an issue, it's a good idea that you be silent on that issue. Now, that's the way he said it, but in the discussion of it, what he imparted to us and impressed upon us was when it comes to passages of Scripture like this, where it's impossible to nail down and build some kind of you know, this is exactly what Paul meant. If you cannot do that in a passage of Scripture, then don't be dogmatic about your interpretation of it. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. That's just common sense. Why then have Baptists historically taken a position that somehow divorce is unpardonable sin for people? I don't get that. And especially building dogmatic positions that have disqualified hundreds, thousands of people called to the ministry, I believe, and yet given no space because somehow they had a failure in their marriage. I ask our committee this as part of my answer to their question, can we consider this guy? Why is it okay in a Baptist church, this Baptist church, For a pastor to stand up and say, I have a history in the past, history, not today, I have a history of drug abuse, intravenous drug abuse. Why is it okay for a pastor to stand up and say, I have that in my background, but not be able to stand up and say, you know what, I had a marriage that just fell apart, didn't work. Why, Why would one of those be disqualified and the other not? And the answer is because we put more stock on tradition 
than on responsible interpretation of Scripture. And it's time for that to stop. Well, if it was my last one, at least I went out with a flurry, huh? So when we come to this, another thing Dr. Howard taught us, don't build dogmatic doctrines on questionable passages. And secondly, let the rest of Scripture inform the interpretation that you have. So let's come to that. And I don't, I'm not going to take a whole lot of time to do this. Matter of fact, I'm going to point you to another sermon. It sounds self-serving for me to point you to some of my past, but that's okay. I'm going to do that here. I have here some copies. I had Kristen run some copies of a sermon that I preached in March of 2012. That was in my first year here. And I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 32, I think it is, 31 and 32, Jesus deals with the question of divorce. In the Sermon on the Mount, this is what... I don't have time to give you the whole background Sermon on the Mount. Jesus deals with this question. I encourage you to go back. You can download it off of our website. I have a number of copies here. You can have only 1995. No, they're, they're free. I'll just put them here. You can come get you one. Um, but I treat in that, that passage and what Jesus says, and I think what he's trying to teach his disciples. Let me put it in a nutshell for you. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. He said that in a Baptist church. I don't get it, people. I don't get it why our history and our tradition has felt comfortable with hammering people who have gone through this. I'm sorry, I hate crying preachers. But you know, our son's going through this. Yesterday, Teresa and I spent the day helping move our son. Suck it up, big boy. There is so much pain. There is so much pain attached to the disintegration of a family. And it's not even, it's not even limited to the couple who are divorcing. And yet historically, our churches have said to people, you're unclean now. That's just dumb. And it's very unbiblical. So what is the overall teaching of Scripture that we need to come to? A one-woman man. I don't know exactly what Paul meant. But I read enough other stuff from Paul that I cannot believe that he intended that to alienate a whole segment of the population from ministering the goodness of grace. From cover to cover, 
Scripture screams grace. I was thinking during the music service today, a guy named King David. How is it okay for a king, the guy in power, to commit flagrant adultery like that and God still use him. How is it okay for a guy named Saul to murder God's people and God still use him? Oh, I know the argument. Well, that was before he came to know Jesus. So that makes a difference. Failure is failure. How is it okay for a guy named Simon Peter who knew better who had been warned to deny Jesus Christ and still be used in God's kingdom. God specializes in grace. The only sin that is unpardonable, that cannot be forgiven, is the one that rejects Jesus Christ and says to the Holy Spirit, I will have none of that. By definition, you can't be saved if that's who you are. Divorce is not on that list. So, back to the question. Biblically speaking, does divorce disqualify an individual from pastoral ministry? I say definitively, not a chance. Now, just because a guy's been divorced doesn't make him qualified either. Any more than a guy who hasn't been divorced is automatically qualified to be a minister either. There's, if you just want to eliminate somebody, there's plenty in those lists that I read through there to get a guy kicked out without having to manufacture words in Scripture that are not there. So what do you do with it? Here's what I want you to do with this sermon. I want you to sift your own opinions through the mesh of Scripture. I appreciate the fact that you're American and you qualify to have an opinion. But you're a Christian and your opinion better match up with Scripture or it don't matter. Secondly, I would encourage you as you do that to be courageous enough to stand up against tradition if that's what's called for. And finally, I don't want you to eliminate a potential minister strictly based on this issue. And that interpretation that we have held for so long. Let's be a people who hold the scripture, doggedly hold the scripture, but let's handle scripture well in the process. And let's be agents of grace. Let's let this church be a haven of grace in these communities. Who better? Who better to step into the pain of divorce and the aftermath of that with children and couples who are no couple anymore. Who better to minister into that than a guy called from God after he'd been through it to called by God into that. He'll minister to people I could never touch. And we still need to decide if this is the guy or not. But I say let's settle the issue what Scripture says about this issue.
If you don't agree with me, that's fine. You want to come talk? Let's talk. But you better bring your Bible and you better be ready because we'll talk about it. And you'll have to convince me other than what we've seen here. Bow your heads, if you will, and let's pray. No invitation today except this one. Are you an agent of grace? Lord, help us to fall in line with your word, even if it makes us uncomfortable. In Jesus' name, amen.